This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. It's Razib Khan with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. And today we have a returning guest, Dr. Chris Stringer. Uh, I don't really want to, I mean, I think most of you know who Chris Stringer is. Uh, he is one of the most um, you know, prominent paleoanthropologists of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, the la- let's just say the last several decades. I don't want to uh, date Chris too much. Um, I think you're at, uh, you're at the uh, British Natural History Museum right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I'm I'm part retired, but I'm I'm there, uh, you know, uh, every week or so. Uh, but I also work from home. Yeah, and like those of you, um, which I think is is a lot of you who've read some of my stuff. I mean, Chris shows up his work. Uh, he's, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, the um one of the more preeminent um proponents of the out of Africa thesis, uh, drawing on uh, morphological on fossil evidence uh, as opposed to just DNA. Um, and so, uh, you know, back in the day when uh, Alan Wilson and Rebecca Kahn were uh, making the molecular argument, uh, you know, Chris would often, uh, you know, be brought in to uh, express the point of view of paleoanthropologists who agreed with them, um, actually agreed with them or um, had the theory earlier uh, than the molecular evidence. So, I mean, that's convenient because, you know, science uh, uses different methodologies to arrive at the same truth. And that's that's optimal, right? Yeah. So, you know, Chris has been, yeah, Chris has been on the scene for a while and, uh, you know, I like to touch base with him because, you know, he has his pulse on, on the fossils and, uh, you know, candidly, uh, Chris always seems to know a little bit ahead of time, which not, not a big surprise with the way science works, you know, uh, probably people touch base with you, Chris, or like you have to do peer reviews. So, um, it's, it's good to, to talk to you because you're, you're at the cutting edge. Um, I have, uh, since the last time we talked about three years ago. I have some questions about like what's been happening and what your perspective as a paleoanthropologist is uh, on some uh, goings on in human evolution. And so I'm just going to start out uh, out of the gate with uh, Dragon Man and, uh, you know, the Israeli uh, fossil. Uh, so Dragon Man, for those of you who don't know, um, is a, a very robust individual uh, from China, some sort of you know, archaic individual, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was in the spring of 2021. So this is, um, you know, not like Homo erectus or something like that, like way, way old, but uh, definitely uh, not an anatomically modern human. And, you know, I've expressed my opinions on who Dragon Man probably is. Uh, maybe uh, I think Chris disagrees a little bit, but that's fine. Um, you know, I don't have a very well-informed view. I mean, it's, I don't know much about fossils. I don't know all the fossils in the world. So, um, Chris, why don't you tell – I mean, this has been three years almost now. Why don't you tell the listeners uh, – who you think Dragon Man is, and just like set the scene a little bit. Yeah, so uh, yeah, as you said, it's a, it's a cranium from China, from northeast China. Um, it was found 
a long time ago. It's got a rather shadowy early history. We don't really know the exact circumstances of its discovery, but it surfaced to the world about five years ago um, when it was displayed at a press conference and then it was called maybe Homo heidelbergensis. This is what the Chinese workers thought it might be. But when I saw photos of it, the face certainly didn't look like a Heidelbergensis. It seemed to have even a more modern-looking face. So I wasn't sure what it was. And then within a year or so, I was invited to join Chinese colleagues who were describing this cranium. So uh, it got the name Dragon Man because of of the province of the Dragon River. Um, And it's a great name. Um, And we published three papers on it. Uh, I was on two of those papers, uh, one which described the fossil in a lot of detail and did some phylogenetic analyses to try and place it. Uh, And I was also on a paper which looked at trying to date the fossil, and we got a dating on it by uranium series dating of, well, certainly 150,000 probably or more. So that's kind of a minimum age for it. So uh, it's not a very recent fossil. It's uh, it's probably at least 150,000 years old. And the Chinese colleagues also did isotope work on the on the preservation of the bone to try and test whether it did come from the Harbin region. And at least the analyses were consistent with fossils or fossil mammals and so on that are from the region. So we think it's from the Harbin region. It's probably at least 150,000. It's a very complete fossil, the most complete one of this period for, from China, in fact, from the whole world for this period of time. Um, and it's huge in size. Uh, it's the biggest fossil skull I've, I've ever seen. You know, it's really an, an enormous individual. Uh, Dragon man, we assume it's a male, but we can't actually sex it, of course. Um, and one, some, some of my Chinese colleagues actually gave it a new species name. They called it Homo longi which is actually Dragon Man. So that's where the Dragon Man comes from, named uh, Homo Longi. I didn't have my name on that paper because I wasn't sure that was the right name for it. Um, I noted in our analyses that it looked uh, quite a lot like another Chinese fossil, Dali, and that has got uh, a a species name not much used, Homo Daliensis. So my preference then was to call it Homo Daliensis rather than Homo Longi. But there's been some more work since, including a couple of publications, which suggest that the Daliensis name wasn't properly given, and therefore Homo longi may well be the valid name for this fossil. So we can we can carry on calling it Homo longi probably from now on. So what our analyses showed was that, yes, it's certainly overall an archaic human, a long, low cranium, great big brow ridges at the front, um, massive in size, of course, as we've said. Um, but when we look at details of it, so a large mastoid process, for example, it's got a large brain, about 1,400 milliliters, so well up there with typical Homo sapiens and Neanderthal values. Um, and the face, as I mentioned, had a much more modern shape, and that was something our analyses confirmed. And the face was actually tucked under the brain case in a more sapiens-like way. So it had this strange combination of features, um, which really set it off. And so our analyses actually, you know, showed that there were these outgroups, so traditional Homo erectus groups, what we can call Homo heidelbergensis or Homo rhodesiensis. And there were three main clades that came out of the analyses we did. A clade of Neanderthals, which contained all the things you'd expect to be in there, including the the Atapuerca ones at about 430,000 came in as early Neanderthals. 
And then there was a Homo sapiens clade with all the things you'd expect, including things like Jebel Ihud and Florisbad as early Homo sapiens. And then there was this clade with Homo longi in it, Dragoman skull, and Dali, and Jinu Shan, so some other Chinese fossils. And the interesting thing was that the closest relationship, the sister group relationship between Neanderthal sapiens and, and let's say, the Dragoman clade was that the Dragoman clade was actually the sister group of Homo sapiens and not of the Neanderthals. So this was quite surprising. So this is based on about, well, it's based on over 600 morphological traits. So obviously there's no DNA data in there. We haven't got DNA from, from Dragoman or, in fact, any of those ancient Chinese fossils. But it seemed to be a bit closer to Homo sapiens than it was to Neanderthals. So that's kind of surprising. Um, and we're doing more work on it to really confirm that pattern. And that pattern continues to come through to us on the morphology, that it is a sister species to Homo sapiens and not to Neanderthals. And, of course, everyone's been asking, well, what about Denisovans? Could this be a Denisovan cranium? If it is, it's the most complete one, so it would be wonderful if we could confirm that. Um, and we were rather cautious in our paper from a couple of years ago. Um, I think the data are building up that that group in China probably are Denisovans. You know, we're not there yet. We don't have their DNA, but there's a jawbone from the Tibetan plateau of China from Zhahe, which on a bit of proteomic data looks like it's a Denisovan and it's got big teeth. And the cave it's alleged to have come from has got Denisovan DNA in the sediments. So that builds up. That could be a Denisovan. There's a similar jawbone off Taiwan from Pengu. That looks similar. That could be a Denisovan. So I think we build up a picture that some of these, including Harmony, could be Denisovans. But then it brings up, of course, a conflict with the molecular data. Because, of course, the molecular data suggests that the Denisovans are a sister group to Neanderthals. They branched off early, maybe 400,000 or more years from the Neanderthals. So we have a conflict with the morphological data, which suggests that these Chinese things are actually more closely related to Homo sapiens. So that's something we've got to resolve for the future. Uh, I gave a talk on Harbin a couple of years ago, which people can find on YouTube. And um, there I suggested that actually the relationship might be quite close to a trichotomy. Uh, there was a three-way split and maybe, for example, there's been more gene flow between the Denisovan and Neanderthal lineages, and we know there has been gene flow between them, and maybe that's brought them to look a bit closer together on molecular data. The morphology seems to suggest that it's closer to Homo sapiens. So I don't think we know the resolution yet, but what also was interesting was the timescale. So Zi Yung Ni, my, my main co-author on these papers, uh, he actually put dates on the divergences in the phylogeny as well. So by looking at the known dates for the fossils, so for example, I've mentioned the Cima de los Huesos material at 430,000 or so. So by putting in dates to the fossils and looking at the amount of morphological change along the branches of the, of, of the, of the phylogenies, we get a divergence date of around a million years for these groups. So that's way older than the normal view on, 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 DNA data. So the DNA data for us and Neanderthal splitting is maybe 600,000. We have a much older date, a million years. So that, again, is interesting. And that's a possible conflict. And, and that's something else that needs to be looked at in the future. Uh, how, how far back did these clades diverge? All right. So that's a lot. Um, I did not... Um... I was not aware of some of these things that you're, uh, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're reporting here, Chris. 
So my first thought, um, I think the molecular data, obviously we have whole genomes. Uh, I think the molecular data about the relationship and the, uh, you know, the molecular, you know, clay, clay, clade of Neanderthals of Neanderthals and Denisovans is very robust. So the fact that you are finding this with 600 morphological characters is interesting. So my thoughts, uh, I mean, just like, you know, without uh, yeah. having any prep on this, is that uh, perhaps Neanderthals are just highly specialized. And so natural selection is causing them to be an outgroup due to their, you know, morphological specializations. What do you think of that? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, building these phylogenies, and this is whether it's true for molecules or, or fossils, you've got to make assumptions about rates of change along the branches. Uh, and if you assume constant rates of change, then, yeah, that that may that could mislead you if one group diverges much faster in terms of change. If the Neanderthals were highly derived in some ways, and they are highly derived in some ways, then, yes, it might take them further away. Uh, but then you'd have to argue, well, why didn't the Harbin group, you know, go in? It's, what's interesting is we might speculate the Neanderthals became cold adapted, for example, and that drove some of their morphology. But Harbin yeah. is actually extraordinarily cold. So Harbin is one has some of the coldest winters in the whole of China, right up in the northeast. They have a winter festival uh, to celebrate this where they have ice sculptures that, that are up there for a month. Um, it has temperatures of minus 16 in the winter. Um, so that's the present day. Now, this Harbin individual could have been there even in a colder period. So I would suggest that that Harbin group is is probably adapted to extreme cold, perhaps even more than what we know of the Neanderthals. And the fact you've got that Ziahe jawbone up at over 3,000 metres on the Tibetan plateau, also extremely cold at times. So if it's cold adaptation driving the Neanderthal divergence, it should be applying, I think, to the Harbin group as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to mention over here, you're talking about cold adaptation and uh, these East Eurasian hominid uh, humans, let's I'll say humans, possibly Denisovans and uh, Tibetan individual, probably a Denisovan. There are some, you know, as you probably know, there are some statistical issues with the proteomics, but probably it is correct. But um, I will say uh, you know, uh, we know EPAS-1, high-altitude adaptation in Tibetans, that haplotype does come from Denisovans. So clearly they were around these regions, had uh, local adaptations uh, to these extreme conditions. Obviously, uh, the original Denisovan genome uh, came from an individual, I think it was the uh, pinky uh, bone, uh, and that was in the Altai. Uh, the Denisovan cave is in the Altai in western Mongolia, uh, you know, uh, east-central Siberia. Uh, so obviously these are in, uh, you know lineages that can survive in extreme cold conditions. On the other hand, unlike Neanderthals, I think that Neanderthals as far south as possibly the Levant, but Denisovans, it seems quite likely that they were extant in tropical Asia because it's very difficult to imagine how you know Austro-Melanesians got that much Denisovan ancestry. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might yeah. need to just expand on that because not everyone may be aware of that. That That's yes, fair. if we look at modern populations in Ireland, Southeast Asia, and even including the Philippines, they have yeah. Denisovan-like DNA in them. Yeah. Know? So let me just—I'll just rewind for the. You know, I, I should probably do a podcast on Denisovans because there's a lot that's been going on. But uh, so basically, what I'm alluding to here is Denisovans were discovered in 2000. I think it was December of 2010. 
uh, by, you know, uh, Pabo and Reich and Patterson and that group. Uh, basically, they were a total surprise um, because, you know, they are not uh, labeled in the fossil evidence and the morphology, you know, as such. Uh, genomically, uh, we have whole genomes from, you know, this individual, and it turns out uh, they are very distinct from Neanderthals, but uh, they are closer to Neanderthals than they are to our modern human lineage. And so the stylized factors imagine modern humans splitting off from the ancestral Denisovan uh, Neanderthal, Neanderthal lineage 600,000 years ago. And then 200,000 years later, uh, there's separation uh, between the Denisovans and the Neanderthals. I think what you're really seeing here, the easiest way to explain it, is Eurasian homonyms. And there's a division going through the middle of Asia uh, around the Altai cave and into Tibet. And on the east side of that, there are Denisovans. On the west side of that, there are Neanderthals. So Neanderthals were flourishing in Central Asia, like places like Uzbekistan. Uh, we know that they were in Iraq and Shanadar Cave, uh, probably in the Levant, I believe. Uh, and then, obviously, in Europe and in Central and Western Siberia. Denisovans, we have, uh, obviously, the genome from the Altai. But um, we also uh, – there's a proteomics from Tibet uh, that Chris is alluding to. So that's like smaller sample size but much more robust. Proteins are much more robust than DNA. So less information, but the information can persist longer, so it's easier to get at them. Uh, but proteomics is much more uh, – useful for interspecies variation. So, you know, there's some qualifications there. But more importantly, it's quite clear that there are low levels of Denisovan DNA all across mainland East Asia and South Asia. And then in Southeast Asia, the Denisovan DNA is also there, but it increases in fraction once you go east of Wallachia. So once you go to eastern Indonesia, and then it peaks currently in the people of Papua New Guinea um, and, you know, Australian Aboriginals, but candidly, there's very few Australian Aboriginals that are, quote, pure blood. So they tend to have like a lot of European ancestry. So obviously their fractions are going to be lower. So in Papua New Guinea, you have individuals that are around, say, 5% Denisovan. I think that's the best recent estimate. It used to be a little higher, but turns out it's a little lower than that. Um, in, in China, Chinese people, like Han Chinese, they tend to be uh, 0.1 to 0.2%. In South Asia, People tend to be like in Pakistan, they're 0.1 percent, and then you know in South India and Eastern South Asia, it's closer to like low 0.2 percent, like a little more than China, and so that really low low fraction is estimable because we have so many we have we have whole genomes of Denisovans, we have multiple now, and you can figure out little segments in the genome and how they're separating out, and it's clear from that those genomes that the Denisovan ancestry in the Chinese is a distinct Denisovan ancestry that is more similar to the Siberian Denisovan genomes that we have than the Denisovan ancestry in the people of Papua. So there are now estimates that there are probably at least three deep Denisovan clades. And so what I mean here is they diversified, you know, 150,000 to 400,000 years ago into different lineages, which would make sense if Denisovans are flourishing in, say, uh, Sundaland. You know, like in Southeast Asia, uh, where Thailand and Malaysia are right now, and like you know, the sea, the sea, the, the sea shelf was exposed because of lower sea levels. So this was woodland savanna uh, in this area south of basically south of modern Bangkok. That whole, that whole like uh, maritime area was exposed. Uh, obviously, you had Denisovans in Siberia as well. So this is a huge, huge latitudinal range, range ecological range. Uh, one of my hypotheses is because East Asia 
had more depth, uh, ecological depth than Europe during the Ice Age. There was a lot more, um, a lot more territory for humans, larger human populations to retreat to. And so you have this diversification of Denisovans. Uh, there could be as many as like four Denisovan populations. Actually, there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, statistical disputation about the Southeast Asia data. Chris also mentioned the Philippines. If you look at the indigenous people in the Philippines, uh, the Aita uh, people, for example, these are pre-Austronesian people that now speak Austronesian. They're about one third uh, different, let's say, from the Austronesians. Uh, they're distantly related to the people in Papua, but it's a very distant relationship. If you look at their Denisovan ancestry fraction, it seems likely that this population had the most Denisovan ancestry, say like three or four 4,000 years ago, before the Austronesians arrived. Like, they could have been as high as 10% or something, I think. So there's a lot of Denisovan in Southeast Asia, but the genomes we have are from Siberia. Uh, and they were clearly, it seems quite likely that they were present in South Asia if there's these low levels of South Asian uh, Denisovan ancestry. It could be that they, you know, migrated back from Southeast Asia, but whatever. There's no Denisovan ancestry, say, west of the Indus, uh, and there's no Denisovan ancestry west of Mongolia, uh, unless you have recent East Asian ancestry, right? So that's like kind of like the potted, uh, the potted, you know, genomic phylogen, you know, genomic, uh, you know, story. But obviously, there's a whole fossil story that needs to be uh, played out. And I think part of this is, uh, Chris, uh, we need uh, DNA from a, a fossil that has enough morphological characteristics that you could use as an anchor to identify all the other fossils in museums and whatnot, right? Yeah, absolutely. And people are working towards that. I know uh, there are colleagues in China who are looking both at ancient DNA and at proteomics in a number of these fossils. And of course, what we also need, as you've talked about in Southeast Asia, I think you're right. There's a lot of diversity of what could have been Denisovans living there. And it shows us that whereas Neanderthals are mainly spreading east-west across Eurasia, the Denisovans, as you've said, were certainly a long way north and they were also down in to the tropics and subtropics. So they're likely to have a wider ecological range and it's not surprising if they split up into diverse populations, particularly because some of those islands in Southeast Asia at times were isolated, at other times were joined on. So there's more potential for diversification. And what we want, as well as getting DNA from some of the Chinese fossils, is to find what these Denisovans were like down in Southeast Asia, because maybe they didn't look like the ones in the north either. Yeah, I mean, so the deepest, and again, like, you know, with all of these things, there's errors, and, you know, our, our model will improve over time. Um, the deepest splits in Denisovans are pretty old, actually, uh, from the molecular uh, data, and that molecular data is obviously reconstructed from uh, to a great extent for modern humans, because we don't have Denisovan genome south of the uh, uh, of Siberia, from what I know, uh, and so. But uh, you have a lot of Papuans. If they're five percent Denisovan, you're going to get a lot of segments, and you can use those to kind of create a picture. Um, one thing that I have a question for you, Chris, and this is actually like I have a few notes of things I need to talk about with you. And now we we've, we've kind of like wandered into territory that I, I can't help myself asking you about. Um, it seems to me. And like I think you were involved in uh, uh, the new Philippine. Uh, there was a Philippine hominid. Uh, it seems to me Southeast Asia is particularly uh, – I'll use the word specios, but it's particularly diverse. Uh, so 
for humans at a particular period of like very distinct lineages. So we know Denisovans were almost certainly there. I mean, I, I would, I don't know, I'd bet like ten thousand USD the Denisovans were there. You know, uh, like I'm very confident of that. Uh, we also know modern humans obviously arrived, you know, during the IUP, but it seems quite possible there were modern like. I mean, actually, like, I'm pretty confident of that because, you know, we could talk about this later, but, like, there, it's quite clear that Neanderthals have modern, like, have African recent, I don't know, let's just call it stem lineage, African stem lineage ancestry uh, into them, uh, pretty old. So there were earlier migrations, it seems likely. Uh, so we have the moderns. Then there are, I don't know if the datings are correct, but they're apparently late erectus, possibly in Southeast Asia. And there's the Flores Hobbits. And then now there's a new hominid in the Philippines. Can you can you speak to Southeast Asia a little bit? What we know in 2024? Yeah, sure. So yes, there's certainly a lot of diversity down there. So as you say, Erectus we think carried on in Java until at least a hundred thousand years or so, maybe later, uh, but certainly down to about a hundred thousand years ago. And we have Floresiensis on there under Flores, uh, probably down on archaeology to about fifty thousand. Uh, we've got Luzonensis, and unfortunately, the site itself is only really a single location with with one lot of dates. And and Reiner Grun and I published a review paper where Reiner revised the dating of the Luzonensis fossils a little bit. And whereas in the literature up to now they're placed around seventy thousand, Reiner Grun thinks that a more likely date is around one hundred and thirty thousand. So that pushes them back a bit, but of course that's just a single record. They may well have lingered on later. Um, and and then of course yes these these Denisovans Southeast Asian Denisovan like people where were they I mean there's occupation on the island of Sulawesi for example which is a huge island uh, which is of course you know isolated as an island in the time period we're talking about a lot of the time and that island uh, has got archaeology on it from about at least 150 thousand years ago so there were pre sapiens people on Sulawesi. Uh, and who were they? They could have been Denisovans. The ancestors of Floresiensis may have come from Sulawesi because the prevailing currents down to Flores actually tend to be north down to south. So Sulawesi is a particularly interesting place, and we've got to hope for some really good data from there. So a lot of diversity. Did Homo sapiens overlap with these ones? Well, that depends on when sapiens got into the area. Um, there is uh, some evidence from... Uh, Southeast Asia that sapiens were there around 70,000 uh, and then there's this site in Australia, Madjebebi 2 which has got occupation dated at about 65,000 no fossils but quite complex behaviour uh, a lot of use of pigments, uh, complex technology um, dated around 65,000 through luminescent states on the, on the sediments now that work looks really good to me but I know there are some people who are questioning it but if that's correct, then someone was in Australia 65,000 years ago in northern Australia, and then they must have come through the region even earlier. So there would then be an overlap with a number of the things we've talked about, if that were true. Um, yeah. And, of course, there's another conflict with the genetic data because the genetic data suggests that the people in Australia today, their genetic diversity is consistent with an arrival in the last 50,000. So there is a bit of a conflict there as well. Yeah, and let me... um. What Chris is alluding to here is, you know, we have ancient DNA of various uh, degrees. I mean, there are ancient Europeans, 
uh, quote unquote, I'm going to say put quote unquote because geographically Europeans, but they're very genetically distinct from modern Europeans uh, that are as old, modern, modern individuals as old as 45,000 years ago. We have Tianyun in north central China uh, that dates to about 40,000 years ago. So we have like, you know, a handful of mostly, I mean, actually almost all northern Eurasian, a very, very old, uh, you know, upper Paleolithic. So, you know, when early modern, when modern humans really started like becoming dominant in Eurasia. So you can use these to kind of anchor our phylogenetic tree uh, that we are constructing now with, you know, millions of human samples, right? From all over the world, obviously different sample sizes for different populations. But if you have one whole genome from one given population, that actually samples its whole ge genealogy. So that's very useful. So when, when Chris says, you know, that conflicts with the genetic data, this is not a minor conflict. Uh, this is a major conflict because uh, the genetic data of the diversification of modern humans, admixture with Neanderthals, say between 50 to 55,000 years ago, all of these dates now have like multiple paths, whether through fossils or genomics, modern genomics, ancient DNA, confirming them. So we are very confident right now that there was an expansion. Well, I mean, Chris can like disagree if he wants to, but uh, I'm pretty confident it seems like there was an expansion around 50,000 years ago associated with what we call the initial Upper Paleolithic. And modern humans outside of Africa uh, emerged out of that diaspora. There was an earlier period of isolation of this lineage that causes the bottleneck that we see in non-African genomes. So perhaps that started 60, 65,000 years ago. And then there was a 10,000-year period where they were isolated, mixed with Neanderthals around, say, like 53,000 years ago or something. Uh, Neanderthal ancestry comes into us. Uh, non-Africans, and then there's a massive expansion, and then between 50K and about 40K, you have like these major uh, divergences between Eastern and Western Eurasia. Uh, the Australians seem to have like diverged from other East Eurasians. So, for example, the ancestors of the Han Chinese Tianyun individual, you know, before 45,000, right? But it's definitely not 65,000 because then all of the other events would have to also be pushed back to 65,000 years, and that makes no sense, right? Because we, it doesn't align with all the other fossil evidence we have about when modern humans show up in Europe, uh, which we kind of know now.